Hello and welcome to this episode of the PE Podcast. My name's Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Dilshan Arawawala, who's the CCIO at Mid Essex NHS Foundation Trust. Dilshan and I start the conversation talking about his early life and the advantages of being the middle child and how he really felt that getting into grammar school gave him a huge foundation and opportunities to become extremely strong academically. He still continues that studiousness into his adult life and can have as many as four books going on at the same time. In addition to being academically strong, Dilshan has always been extremely hardworking, from getting up at 6am at the age of 11 to doing his paper round, to then doing 120 hour weeks as a medical student. He was really driven to that CCIO role within the trust by wanting to make a real impact on quality of care through digital health. His thoughts on leadership can be summed up nicely in one quote that features in the podcast episode. The most effective leaders are the ones who don't need to show off their shiny badges, but are actually leading by example. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation as we get to know the person behind the job title. Hi everyone, before we get into this conversation, we just want to give a shout out to this episode sponsor, Common Time. Common Time have launched a new brand for the healthcare market, which goes live this week called InTime. ICOM, a next generation clinical communications app produced by Common Time, has demonstrated itself as the market leading application to help replace aging bleep technology currently delivered by pages. Streamlining clinical communications whilst providing a secure and most importantly integrated clinical messaging tool that provides real time instant messaging for all staff. Common Time understands the structure of NHS organizations. As such, ICOM allows its users to interact as individuals, in groups, or directly using their roles and responsibilities within their team. The application hosts impressive features that include automating workflows, escalating or diverting any undelivered or unactioned requests, as well as automating the booking of beds and operating theatres. Common Time are now working in partnership with eight NHS trusts in helping them to achieve their overarching digital strategy. So cool. So, um, Dilshan, thank you so much for being on. It's uh, a pleasure to to speak with you and and hopefully get to know you a bit more over the next kind of hour or so. Thank you for inviting me, Jack. I think these are really interesting times, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Good, good, good. So, so the series of you know is, is titled "The Person Behind the Job Title." So, um, all about you. Um, hopefully, nothing that stumps you. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think you know. Let's let's start with at the start for you, really. So, so you know, where did you grow up, and uh, and, and where did you come from? Yeah, so I guess um, my family are really are originally from Sri Lanka. Um, I was born in Tottenham, North London, and grew up in in Ilford, in Essex. And um, I'm I'm one of five brothers. Um, which is, as you can well imagine, a, a bit of a handful. Yep, yeah. The rivalry. I can already see it. The rivalry growing <laughs> up. Yeah. So, so I guess you know, which child do you think I was in that case? Uh, mm, you said that now. You're either you've got to be the youngest because you said that. No, I'm the middle child. You're the middle child. There we go. There we go. Well, <laughs> I was basically I had like a twenty percent chance of getting that right, didn't I? You did. Um, yep. And and I definitely didn't get it right. So. Uh, so you was the middle child. So does that mean that you was like the least favorite then? Because you weren't the oldest and you weren't the youngest. You was like the one in the middle. <laughs> so I, I, I guess, you know, I had the opportunities to, 
to learn um, from all around me because I was the one with the least focus on me. So uh, I think there's many pluses to being a middle child is what I'd say. That, that, that was the <laughs> most political answer I've ever heard. <laughs> so so um, I was doing a bit of, of digging. And I, well, f- first of all, I don't know if you've done this deliberately, but you're hard to dig on because you ha- you, your LinkedIn profile doesn't go to the start. So I had to do even more digging on you. But I, I saw that you'd, you'd gone to a grammar school. So um, was that through kind of academic achievements growing up and, and then invited to a grammar school? Or what, what was the situation there? Yeah, so it was, you know, uh, the 11 plus um, and, you know, in those days uh, didn't have any tuition. It was just a, you know, go off and do a test and uh, you kind of just got a letter through saying you've been offered a place and, uh, and you know, it, it was a great experience. It was a long way from where I lived. I had to get uh, normally three buses to get there, wow. um, you know, two if I was lucky. Uh, and, you know, and I've got to say um, it, it really did give me uh, the opportunities to you know, become you know, academically far stronger, I believe, than if I'd have gone to a state school. How was that? Because I, I assume that you probably was, a, was one of the only person, you know, people from the school that you went to. So, so it was a primary school because you're going to grammar schools like from, from year seven onwards, isn't it? So, um, so was you the only person from your primary school to go to that school? There was uh, one other boy um, um, who... Uh, went for my school so they took 120 per year so yes there were two of us um that kind of made it through yeah um yeah and and so so it there was an opportunity to kind of meet lots of new people um and i think at that age you you probably don't really value um that kind of opportunity um and you kind of just do what you're told in many ways um and you kind of (laughs) i mean you know we've all been there at 11 and you just kind of just go along and you go to all the classes and 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 so forth but you know it it was a school with many opportunities um but what i would say is um now i wasn't sporting um i wasn't particularly musical and i I, at that point in my life uh you know was you know loved reading books loved learning things uh, and that's where i got the most value out of school makes sense makes sense and did so were you the only uh, one in your family to go to a grammar school as well or did any of your your brothers go no i'm i was i was the only one um that went to the grammar school my one of my brothers joined uh, in in sixth form because i think there was, yeah. not, there was you know chances for other people at sixth form to get in but yes yeah, so i was i was the only one i take back what i said earlier you were definitely the favorite <laughs> i'm not sure that's the case <laughs> but anyway so so you were academic growing up um um obviously very bright very intelligent um a big reader i assume such, all that kind of stuff stayed with you as well um for for your you know in your, your adult life as well you know i assume you still read and stuff I'm, I'm definitely i've normally got kind of you know three or four books uh on the go uh normally one or two as audio books and another as just uh, simple reading books and it tends to be a mixture of fiction non-fiction and yeah, you know, I just think you know I've I've always been a bit of a sponge uh, when it comes to information, and uh, you know as I move on, I feel there's a different field I want to go into. Then I I want to know about it and really understand it before I sort of throw myself into it. Yeah. And I think you know a lot of people tend to be you know kind of learn on the go, and we all do learn on the go. But I, I like a nice kind of base uh, to you know uh, um, to whatever I'm doing um, in order to kind of launch from. Um, so, you know, at, at the moment, for example, um, I, I'm doing, um, uh, it's called the, the Essential MBA. It's a 
10-week online course from London School of Economics and just felt you know those kind of um, business skills will be quite useful um, with you know, shift partner but also with my CCIO role so yeah we look lots about management accounting and financial accounting at the moment yeah oh, awesome awesome so what what did you want to do growing up then did you did you know you wanted to work for the NHS from a young age or um, or was it something different yeah I, I think I was uh, really influenced influenced by, by my mum. So she um, was a nurse and worked in um, the old Mile End Hospital, uh, which I think is now nice big, uh, sh- you know, shiny flats or something. And it was um, a, um, a hospital for, for the elderly. And, you know, she, she used to work, you know, incredibly long hours, um, night shifts, day shifts, and, you know, leave us as kids to kind of get ourselves ready when, you know, uh, when she needed to. But she, she absolutely loved um, her job. She loved helping people and it was just very much in her nature. And she was the one who said, you know, you're really bright. Um, why don't you, you know, look, look to do medicine? And I thought, yeah, you know, I, I love the sciences. Um, I love learning and I could see, you know, that I could do loads of that <laughs> at university. So, so it was along that, you know, along that vein uh, that I entered uh, medical school. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, and then, so, so um, talk to me about your, your university days then. So you, you, you obviously was at the grammar school, um, not, obviously would have done well um, in terms of your grading and, and so on. And did you stay for the sixth form at the grammar school? I, I did, yeah. So it was um, uh, uh, seven years um, uh, at that one place. And, uh, you know, it, it was an all-boys all, all school, um, which, uh, you know, was, was quite strict as well. So the so university was definitely a kind of um, a whole new world, uh, shall we say, as I think it happens to a lot of people. Um, I, I went to Manchester Uni. And um, my first experience of it was when I was um, doing little day trips up to check out universities and went to go and see Oxford and Cambridge because that's where the school, uh, you know, wanted me to apply. And they were just so stiff and rigid um, kind of organisations. Went to Manchester, the sun was shining, people were sitting on the grass, you know, drinking beer and just, you know, having, you know, um, you know, some fun actually and just enjoying life. And I thought, this is where I want to go. Um, so yeah. of all the offers I got, I, I, I chose uh, Manchester. Wow. And so did you get offers at Oxford or Cambridge or did you not even bother applying? No, I, I didn't even apply yeah. in the end. But all the other places I, I, I received offers from. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would have got into Oxford or Cambridge or got an offer for them, but it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right. Um, you know, and I think, you know, for me, uh, it wasn't just about doing a course. It, wow. There was something more that I wanted um, from university and when I visited Manchester I thought yes this is the chance for me to kind of grow um, you know as a person and I think yeah. um, you know in those early years when I was at school and it was very academically focused lots of traveling either side uh, to get to and from school I didn't, there wasn't those kind of chances um, to kind of grow as a person. Yeah makes sense makes sense so in terms of that as an experience for you then going from a grammar school um, with highly intelligent people probably people that were and, and correct me if i'm wrong and making the wrong assumption but introverts and um and uh, by the majority to go into a vibrant city and i don't get me wrong you know you were in in essex um it's it's not like that's not vibrant enough but what was that like as an experience for you what you was probably what 18 19 by that point and you know moved away i assume from the family home um going to to, to a different city different accents, um, different, um, different cultures, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what, what was that like as an experience for you? 
Um, so <laughs> I, I think um, yeah, for the first kind of few few weeks, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, a whole new bunch of people. Um, you know, um, obviously, uh, you know, there was uh, um, free money effectively with with a grant, uh, 250 miles away from home. Um, finding out about things like beer and pizza and kebabs and, cl- and clubs and you know it was just one big party to start with <laughs> uh you know until you get the, the phone call from the bank manager saying you need to come in uh you're uh more overdrawn than final year students uh and we need to have a chat you know and and i think um, you you very quickly realize that you know, it's not one big party um and you know you do have to grow you have to take some responsibilities uh, and i think you know um uh, I guess being at home where my mum did everything for us, um, you know, it just didn't click um, that all these kind of things were now my responsibility. Um, so, so, yeah, so I mean, I, I still obviously continue to have fun. Uh, but I think as a person, um, you know, I, I did I did start to grow up very, very quickly. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So, so you left university um, and what, 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 what did you actually do at university? What was the course? Yes, I came up with uh, two degrees. So obviously, um, I came up with, with my medicine degree, yep. um, and um, but also there was the opportunity to do an inter, what we call an intercalated degree, okay. where uh, medics get to count kind of two years they're on of their the first two years of its medical degree towards a bachelor of science, and I did that in the history of medicine, um, which was you know, an absolutely fantastic course because it it, it kind of I think with a lot of things, we're always looking forward and we're always looking at, you know, um, well, either where we are now or, or looking forward. But people rarely look back um, and actually say, you know what, um, have we done these things before? Yeah, you know, you know, what can we learn from the past to stop ourselves making those same mistakes or, or the opportunity to make those same successes again? And so yeah. it was a really fascinating course. Yeah, no, I, I bet, I bet. So <clears throat> talk to me about so uni- university. So where was your kind of first job and stuff? Or did you go straight into the NHS or did you have, um, you know, like a, a, a job at a restaurant just as a stopgap type thing? What, what was the, what was your, the, the kind of uh, work journey like? Yeah, so from a work point of view, I mean, I, I've worked from the age of 11. Um, so, you know, um, the uh, 6 a.m. Um, paper round to, to, yep. to earn a bit of cash and then worked in, a, you know, uh, the new agents, then used to work in, in university in the summers, uh, normally doing kind of admin jobs. And then, yes, yeah, straight from uh, university, uh, joined the NHS. Um, so that was in August 1996. And my first house officer job was, was in Blackburn, um, which obviously is on the outskirts uh, of Manchester. Um, which was, um, it was split across two sites, Blackburn Royal Infirmary, and then there was um, Queen's Park, which was on the top of a hill. And, you know, it was an an amazing experience, I've got to say, some of the friendliest people um, that I've ever met. But looking back, I mean, some of the scariest um, medical experiences, you know, these were the days when you're doing 120-hour week um, as the norm, and you were often the, the, one of the most senior medical people on site, you know, out of hours, looking after huge swathes of people um, with really quite you know, rudimentary knowledge and skills. Uh, but, you know, you know, you are throwing the deep end and, you know, you, you do learn to swim very, very quickly. I was going to say, because that seems a lot of responsibility for someone that's not long out of university. So what was there? How did you <clears throat> make the, such a big jump up in terms of... Um, I suppose responsibility and, and, and pressure ultimately on you. How did how did that happen so quickly? Yeah, so you had um, um, I mean, Eagle Hospital had a different kind of setup, and I think um, 
and I, I did have what's called an SHO um, um, on call with me, and they're, they're normally about a year more with the years more experienced than you, and then uh, a consultant at home. But because of the split site nature of Blackburn, then the more senior doctor, the registrar, was off, was at the other site, which is about kind of three or four miles down the road. Um, and yeah, you know, you, you often um, looked to the kind of senior nurses on site uh, to kind of guide you. And, you know, and, and it still holds true today that, you know, um, if you want to learn how to practice medicine, you need to learn from all around you. And it's not just the doctors. Um, you know, the nurses are the ones who spend far more time with a patient than, than a doctor does. Uh, and that they can really tell you, um, you know, how a patient is, whether they're improving, what's worrying them. Um, so, you know, it really taught me the, the value um, of, of those kind of multidisciplinary you know, conversations um, and, and listening to other people. Yeah, makes sense. So, so was you, did you start as a doctor before you went into a specialism? Yeah, I did. So, um, so the structure is you kind of spend um, uh, one year doing six months of medicine, six months of surgery as a kind of junior doctor. You then get your full registration after that. And then you have to decide where you want to go. And so I, I chose the route of medicine um, and spent a couple of years doing um, a, a sort of medical rotation. And I, I did that at Blackburn again because I really liked the place. And, um, you know, it, you know, the experience was phenomenal. I was doing things that, you know, um, like senior regs now are only allowed to do. And um, so it was really good from a learning point of view. But, um, you know, it, it didn't in a way put me off doing um, a, a acute internal medicine because it was just, you know, um, you can never get on top of the job. Um, you know, when you've got 50 plus admissions coming you know, th through the door each day mm. you know you're always up against it um, and it was at that point I kind of realized that you know, I wanted to do something a bit different I wanted something that was still acute had lots of hands-on but had a lot of kind of um, uh, kind of basic science behind it and, and so that kind of drew me into um, anesthetics and critical and, and with want to do um, intensive care um, and so after getting my, my membership, my MRCP, uh, you know, I said good, goodbye to a potential future in gastroenterology. That's what I wanted to do and went and became uh, a anaesthetic SHO. Um, I did two years on the, uh, on the Manchester rotation, which is a fantastic rotation going through places like Stepping Hill, Hope Hospital um, and loads of other hospitals around there, um, learning how to become an anaesthetist. Yeah. And what's that like the first time that you you know you take fully you know, you're in full control of the situation and you and you deliver those the medicines that's going to ultimately knock someone out for a period of time what's the first experience like of that can you think back to the first time you've done it and you was ultimately in charge of that that decision yeah i, I mean I, i'd say you know it, it's an incredibly scary experience because you take someone who's living and they're breathing and they're doing all things for themselves and you turn them into almost like you know this fully dependent unit and you know and i mean that is it is quite scary and yeah. you know and I've, I've i've i still i'm in absolute awe um of of you know some of the really senior anesthetists i guess i am one of them now but those days you just look look at them thinking they're so relaxed they're so calm and they look like they're not really paying attention but wow, these guys are super focused, you know, and, you know, people compare them to um, airline pilots and they say the worst, you know, the most difficult parts are the takeoff and the landing. Yeah. And they're absolutely right because that's when you've got to be absolutely honed and you're using all your senses 
and it is really a combination of um, a lot of science uh, but also an art because what works for some anesthetists doesn't work for others and you know and luckily you know um, where I trained up in Manchester I, I you know I had superb um, um, trainers who, who really kind of held your hand and really got you doing bit by bit you know until you were confident in each area if you were thrown into that without that kind of um, supervision you could really cause some damage uh, to yeah, people um yeah it's, it's so interesting it's so so interesting um what i want to start on this for a second talk talk me through the 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 process um if you can um you know high level you know so someone's um got to go down for an urgent operation um what what what's the the um the, the process behind it, you have to find out weight, height, those kind of things that determine how much drugs you administer, how long the operation is going to be. How does it work from that point? I just find it so interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, um, um, you kind of apply kind of, you look at kind of three main areas. Uh, one is patient factors, number two is surgical factors, and number three is anesthetic factors. So when you, you kind of first called and they say, look, we need to operate on this person, you'd go and see that patient and it'd be those three things that are going through your mind. So, you know, you'd want to know as a patient, you know, um, you know uh, how old are they, you know, um, you know, how sick are they? Because that gives you those kind of factors, you know, um, you know um, help you to understand how well they're going to tolerate the anesthetic and, and the surgery. So if you've got, for example, quite an elderly patient with lots of comorbidities who's in septic shock, you know, they're going to be a really a real challenge to actually, you know, keep them alive through the whole thing uh, compared to, you know, for example, someone like yourself, you know, young fit guy who's, you know, maybe having a toenail removed electively, you know, your, your kind of thresholds for, you know, for causing harm are, are much, much wider. Sure. Um, you think, you think about the, the surgical factors, exactly what is the surgeon going to be doing for them? Is he clipping their toenails? You know, is he basically ripping out all their guts kind of thing? You know, because each one, you know, is tolerated to clearly, uh, you know, in different ways by people. Mm. Um, you know, and, and then the, the third one, the anesthetic factors, you know, what are the key things you, that you have to deliver? Because, you know, it may be the right thing to, um, uh, to, you know, put them into that kind of, you know, uh, induced coma, as they call it, into that, uh, you know, anesthetized state. If you do have to do that, well, what are the best drug combinations? You know, some impact the cardiovascular system more than others. Some you really want the patient to be as, as, as wide awake as possible to minimize the risk of them being delirious when they wake up and you need them to recover quickly. So the combinations you use are different. You may want to use regional techniques and have them fully awake. Uh, you know, and, and so there are a lot of things that you need to understand but also, you know, everything we do to a patient you know, has the potential to cause harm um, as, uh, you know, as, as well as good. So if you don't tailor it and you, you just do things kind of blindly, you know, and, and you see it, sadly, you know, it's still happening, you know, and it's because people aren't necessarily thinking about everything they're doing. Yeah. So, it, you know, it really is quite intense. So, you know, I, I see anesthetists as almost like, you know, swans. You know, so on the surface they're gliding, but their feet are kicking away underneath. Yeah. <laughs> they absolutely are. You know, they're some of the brainiest. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't count myself as one of the brainiest knees. There are some really brainy anesthetists, you know, and, and they all have that ability to process a lot of information very, very quickly. Yeah, amazing, amazing. It's um, like I said, it's it's so interesting because um, you know, there's such a huge amount of responsibility that bears with that role. And, you know, you've got the the pressures of 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 you know making sure that the person is down and gets back up for as long as it needs to be because 
you know, you can't have someone wake up mid-surgery, for example, as well, right? Um, no, yes. I'm, I'm or sure not wake up at all. Horror stories said. around that kind of stuff. There always are, you know, and I think um, nowadays you look at um, anesthesia, it's, it's incredibly safe, but it's not risk-free. And it, it's really, I think, trying to un- help people understand that every procedure they have done, there are going to be some risks. And it's about how you kind of you know, make that risk-benefit uh, you know, ar- argument with them, because ultimately it's their decision uh, as to whether they have the anesthetic uh, um, or, you know, for surgery or not. And that's where, you know, good communication is, is critical. You have yeah. to be able to you know, speak with the patient, but to really hear them and really hear what their concerns are. And so one of the most critical bits of any anest- you know, anesthetic episode is going to see the patient beforehand and having that conversation to understand who you're dealing with, um, you know, what you're trying to solve with them um, and, get, and helping them to understand uh, you know, what they're about to undertake. Sure, sure. So one one note to anyone that's going into surgery: don't be rude to the uh, anaesthetist because, uh, yeah, <laughs> never be rude to anyone is what I say. Indeed, but, you know, indeed, yeah. definitely not the anaesthetist. So. <laughs> <laughs> so talk with me through your journey. Then let's move on a bit. So, um, so you're black. You're in Blackpool. Obviously, you're now down in in uh, Mid Essex, right? So, um, where's the what's the journey in between that? Yeah, so so, um, so I did my, my two years SHA rotation and then uh, was due to apply for a registrar job. And um, yeah, I was originally from you know, down obviously down the, in the southeast, and um, I, I actually started going out with with a uh, with a girl from uh, who lived in Surrey and had actually moved up to Manchester to kind of be with me. And we both decided, you know, what, let's try and get back down to London. Our families were there, friends were there, and so decided to apply for a, a job on a registered job on the Imperial rotation, which is obviously West London. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I actually applied to, well, I phoned up all three, sorry, four um, schools of anesthesia around London. And I said, look, I'd like to apply. And they said, that's great. And I said, but I want to take, I want to get the job and I want to defer it for six months. And they said, oh, well, why is that? And I said, well, because I want to go traveling um, around, around the world. And they said, so you want to go and experience anesthesia elsewhere? And I said, no, I want to go and travel and experience different things, grow as a person. I said, look, look at my CV. I said, I've done far more than most people uh, at this point of my career. I think I've proven myself as being committed and being capable of completing the uh, rotation. And it's actually the Imperial School that said, you know what? That sounds absolutely sensible to us. Uh, we'll interview you if you finish high enough in the rankings in that interview round, then we'll assume that you would have done well for you know six months time and we'll give you a deferred placement and that's how i end up in the imperial school of anesthesia that takes some guts um i I think i was just being open and honest with them really uh to say look you know this is who i am i think i'd i do well with you guys and um and this is why you need to give me that opportunity how how old were you at this point uh 25 i think 25 26 yeah so so, so, you know so i I, I wasn't that young i don't think i was necessarily particularly worldly wise either but but one thing that you know really kind of hit home um at at that point was i'd been on this kind of educational journey from the age of 11 you know straight through school straight through uni straight into job and i I thought you know i've got another 
five years um, at least um, before I, I can um, get a consultant position. Um, and I thought I really need to kind of step off this, this kind of conveyor belt, which is going along really fast and just find out a bit more about myself and, and see a bit more, a bit more of the world. Yeah. Good for you. Because um, I think a lot of people at that age probably would have just gone or been too timid to ask that question. You know, I think that's, I think it was a brave thing to, to, to kind of dictate your, what you, what you ultimately wanted to do. Um, but I think probably that confidence comes with the role that you was in as well. Right. Because, you know, you, you, you like you said, communication skills and so on, and just being open and honest and so on. So talk, so I didn't know you'd gone traveling and it wasn't on my sheet of questions. I have to ask about that then. So where did you go and what did you do for six months? Yeah, so we literally went around the world. So um, we uh, bought one of these kind of round the world tickets where you, f- you you kind of fly in at one point and fly at another point on that yeah. continent. And you've got like a certain amount of question, um, a certain amount of um, uh, questions, uh, flights, haven't you? Including that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen Absolutely, them. Yeah, yeah. So, so we we flew into Rio, um, spent some time in Rio State, and then we uh, went down to Chile and then up uh, to um, uh, Peru. Uh, and then um, joined another a group of people who did this kind of one month trek through Peru, Bolivia, um, Ecuador, uh, doing uh, Machu Picchu, the Inca Trail. And I mean, I was actually on the Inca Trail when nine eleven happened. Oh wow! And you know, had no phone or anything. And um, you know, when we got to the kind of the base camp, and there were kind of a few kind of bars there and uh, telephone, and all these people crying as Americans. And I was thinking. It was quite a hard trek, but it wasn't that hard. It was like five days, you know, uh, doing this. And then just walked into this pub and, uh, you know, to have a beer because, you know, hadn't had anything for like five days. And just all these, on the TV, you got planes flying into buildings. I thought, what movie is this? And it was like, no, no, this actually happened two days ago. And it was like, oh, my God. And, you know, we were unaware of this because we were you know, four or 5,000 metres up with no communication with the world. Yeah. Um, what, what, when that happened, I can imagine your family's concern first and foremost for you traveling, especially, especially, you know, I know you weren't in North America, you was in South America at that point, but still, you know, you're in the West side of the world, right? Um, what was that like for them, you know, dealing with you being abroad and flying regularly when all of the, and there was massive scaremongering when that happened. I was only very young when that happened, but I still remember the scaremongering. Yeah, I mean, they had no contact with us. You know, we didn't have kind of mobile phones um, in the in those days, and um, we would start kind of sending home emails, literally, you know, once a month as we were moving from one continent to another, for example. So yeah, we're fine or whatever. And so they had no idea um, what was going on, and I, I kind of phoned and said, "Look, you know, I'm fine. Everything's fine. We we haven't been in contact because we were just literally in the middle of nowhere." And so I think it was quite scary for them and for our friends as well because they knew that we were heading into North America and actually it was two days afterwards that we, we went in through uh, into North America via Miami, um, which is obviously where the kind of terrorists got into the U S um, so yeah, so I think it, it was a scary experience and I guess that shows how much the world is, has moved on. Right. I mean, now you have a mobile phone in your pocket, wherever you are and you're always contactable. So it was a very different time. Yeah, no, definitely. So, so you went into North America and, uh, and, and then traveled through, United States, I assume, and in, into Canada in the end? Uh, no, so we, well, so we went uh, to Miami, then up to San Francisco, uh, so Los Angeles, then up to San Francisco to see friends. And then we flew from there um, across to um, Australia, um, so to 
Sydney and then been trekking up to, up to Cairns. And uh, myself and my wife, uh, we were both really big divers uh, around that time. So each of these places, uh, we were diving, you know, like in, in South America, we were doing some diving. And then obviously in Australia, you've got to do the Great Barrier Reef. And so we were diving around there. And then from um, Australia, we flew into Singapore. And then we traveled up from Singapore all the way up into, through Malaysia and um, through the islands of Thailand, all the way up into North Thailand. Um, doing uh, diving all, all on the way and doing things like the full moon party in Koh Phangan, Bangkok, uh, trekking up in Chiang Rai, Chiang Mai, you know, all those kind of things. It was just a backpack on your back. And then from there, we went to Sri Lanka, which is obviously where my family are from, yep. and spent a month just backpacking around Sri Lanka, um, you know, and seeing it from a very, very different perspective. And, and, then, yeah. and then back to, back to the UK, yes. Had you been to Sri Lanka much growing up? No, I mean, you know, um, we weren't from a particularly wealthy family and um, we'd done one, one family trip. Um, just actually, it was the only trip abroad I, I ever did as, as a child was to Sri Lanka. And um, that, that was the first only time that I'd met um, you know, my, one of my grandmothers and I never got to meet all the others because um, they all passed away in that time period of me growing up. And so, um, it, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 was, it was a very different um, country then from what it is now and you know in those days that was in 1983 was the first time i went there yeah there was like you know maybe one or two televisions uh in in, in a village for example and you kind of go around to that person's house to watch it and uh, i think it was the were wedding actually that i think i remember seeing if i remember rightly uh when really? I was over, yeah things you remember uh, eh? i know and well, it's crazy um yes yeah, so, so, so you know so it, it was um you know it was a side that I really wanted to spend some time in that country because that's where obviously, you know, my, my parents are from. Yeah, that's yeah, where that's I knew where. half of me was, was so, so yeah. all of me was from, I mean, uh, in terms of terms of my roots. And uh, I thought it was really important. That I try and get to know parts of my family a bit better. Um, yeah. you know, and over, over the, um, the ensuing years, I've been back, you know, uh, loads of times, uh, either on my own or, or with my own family, of trying to keep those links up and uh, you know maintain those connections because you know if I don't then it, it's even less likely with my children for that to happen. Of course, you seem very self-aware. You know, you know, I wrote on my notes like you know logical and bring that up again. You know, you, you talked about earlier about <clears throat> you know when you go into something you really want to learn about stuff and you you really seem to know how you work and. Um, know what you want to do you know even the example of you wanting to travel and stuff like that before before starting where does that come from do you think because again you know again going back to what you just said about wanting to know your roots and and that being important to you and stuff like that comes from you knowing what you want so where does that self-awareness come from do you think oh that's a really good question actually <laughs> um i'm not really sure and i i think maybe what do you agree with me though yeah no i i, I do um, and, and I think it maybe comes from a desire to succeed and to do well. I think, you know, I'm always looking to continually improve myself and um, I, I'm always reflecting on what I've done. And I do that pretty much every day. Um, you know, I just, whether it be in bed or first thing in the morning, I'm just thinking about what I did the day before. I'm thinking, you know, what could I have done better? Um, you know, how could I have changed it? And think about what's coming on, on the day and thinking, you know, how am I going to, uh, frame myself what's missing are there any pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that i need to find anyone i need to speak to any bit of knowledge i need to 
add to the add equation. To the equation. Uh, so it, it's just the way I think my brain yeah. has worked. It's rare. It's really rare to be that self-aware and that it's so easy. You know, 90% of the population drift, right? Drift through their life. And there's no goals. There's no, um, there's no kind of real purpose as to what they're doing or why they're doing it and so on. And, um, you know, for you to be that reflective, you know, even, even, and you have to be conscious with that, don't you? That's something, that's something that doesn't really come unconsciously. You don't just think, oh, what did I do yesterday? How can I be better today? So is there, is there a certain routine that you stick to? Is there certain living principles that you have? I think one thing that helps me is um, I, I, I'm a runner and, you know, an a cyclist and those are time periods where I'm on my own and I can really get kind of lost in my thoughts and, and really think things through. Um, and I think that that's where I get that time to reflect. You know, I, I mean, I tend to run a very, very busy week and you know, normally I'm kind of up at six and I'm not normally in bed till about at least 11 at night. And uh, the rest of my family d- doesn't get up till about eight, nine. And so I normally have a couple of hours in the morning, make a coffee and I can just sit down and have a little think about things. And when I'm running, I can do the same thing. And yeah, I think it's just some, something I've always done. And um, when you mention the word purpose, I'm, I'm guessing if my kids were on this call right now, they'd be rolling their eyes going, oh my God, he sounds just like dad. Because I'm always saying, you know, uh, you've got to have a sense of purpose, you know, you know, you know and it, it doesn't have to be really rigid, but you've got to have some kind of path because as you say, otherwise you, you, you drift, you know, and you can be drifting from side to side. Um, if it's too rigid, then maybe it takes a little bit of flat life. But yeah. I think, you know, for me, it's always been about having um, different goals at different points in my life, you know, and, um, and also not being selfish about it, having goals that actually fit in with the people around me and uh, specifically, uh, I think, my wife and my kids. Um, so um, doing, you know, all my exams before my kids were born, that was a real challenge. I mean, my wife was like seven months pregnant when I was doing my final FRCA, thinking I've got to pass this now because if I don't get it, you've got to have a kid there. And it's a very different uh, equation then. Um, you know, um, we didn't go, I had a placement in Australia for, uh, for a year to go and work in rural North Shore doing intensive care. I didn't take it because we then had a young child and it didn't seem the right thing to do. Um, and then, you know, just making sure that I, I've been around for the family, you know, over the last kind of five to 10 years. So, you know, I'd love to set up my own business and do different things, but now it's not the right time, you know, to do it as in those. But, but now my kids are, 16 and 12 and, and now is the right time to start doing different things you don't look old enough to have a 16 year old dilshan do i not thank you no, very much you i think that's a compliment yeah you should, you should. Well, yeah. um so you've got two children i do yes two boys, boys girls two two boys yeah your family must be bursting with boys what about your brothers what do they have yeah, um, so, um, so, so let me think. So my oldest brother has uh, one boy. My second eldest guy, I need to think about this. Yeah, he is a boy. Uh, and then actually my younger brother has uh, one boy, one girl. And my youngest brother has one girl. Um, but we've always girls, said my youngest brother uh, is adopted. Eight, nine boys? Say so that again, sorry. And we've always said my youngest brother is adopted, so that's why we had a girl. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a family joke. You, you know what kids are like, yeah, they pick on each other and say horrible things. Yeah, uh, yeah the, 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 there's something in our genes which definitely makes us more predisposed to have boys, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got three girls, so uh, uh, you'll have to, you'll have to, we'll have to have a private conversation after, and you'll have to let me know how it works. 
<laughs> I'm not drawing you any pictures, Jack. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll communicate. We'll have a chat. Absolutely. Uh, there we go. There you go. Um, so, so we got to um, uh, your to the point where about 25, 26, and you'd um, you'd then got off, gone off traveling. So, fast forward um, to, to now, really. So, um, you become CIO, CCIO for the trust about three, four years ago, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Just over three years ago. And um, yeah. so, so I guess the question, you know, why did I go for that position? And, and I think um, uh, when I became a consultant, you know, I, I was really keen on, uh, on things like um, R&D and on quality improvement. So, you know, I took on kind of, um, you know, departmental audit roles and then trust-wide audit roles looking to kind of continually improve services. Yep. I was heavily involved in research and getting lots of research projects through and intensive care units. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of guess, you know, um, um, you know, what I noticed was that the, the impacts that I were having um, were small, uh, but, but they were quite difficult to sustain. And I think um, this is when I think digital was really kind of start, starting to show its head in, in, in healthcare. And I thought, you know, this is a, potentially a really good opportunity to really start improving things. And, you know, as you know, I'm an improvement kind of guy. Um, and I thought that, you know, I could really have a big impact here, you know, really help to change things. Um, and so, so I, I applied, I applied for the job and, um, um, and I, I got it, um, which is had great. You heard, have you, had you heard of the role before a CCIO? No, no, I hadn't actually. Um, and, and so I'm glad they didn't ask me any technical questions or digital questions on the interview because <laughs> I would have failed. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so, you know, you'd have read, a, you'd have read a book before definitely about it. Yeah, well, this, so you're absolutely right, Jessica, because what happened is when I started in the role, you know, it, it became, you know, I, you know, within about six months, I was thinking, you know what, I do not know what I need to know for this job. And I thought, um, this is not a good position to be in. And this is a position which has uh, a lot of responsibility, a lot of, a lot of risk with it as well, uh, not just individually, but actually to my colleagues from the organization and i need to do something about this um i need to go and read a book as you said or you know find a way of improving myself and it was lucky that the energy digital academy um kind of started you know advertising at that point and uh and it was um, you know someone in the organization said look you know ever seen this and I went, oh, this looks perfect and so you know i i literally it was the, the night before the deadline. I remember sitting on my bed, um, you know, literally just typing on my computer the application form uh, to send in. Thinking, I haven't got a hope in hell. I've literally just knocked this out in five minutes. Um, yeah, because you know, I think a lot of now, I think you see this in um, the public sector a lot. People taking on positions of responsibility without necessarily having the knowledge and the skills, um, and and also I guess the behaviours to actually do them well. And, you know, and I didn't want to become one of those people. Thought, you know, so, I, so you I don't really... agree with the uh, Richard Branson quote then? Which is that one? If you're given an opportunity to do something you don't know how to do, take it and then learn after. Or worse to that effect. So, so I, I think, you know, um, if the impact, um, you know, is just on you, then fine, you can get away with that. But what I think, you know, in a profession like, like healthcare and you know, looking after people, I, I don't think you can do that. I mean, sure, you, everyone learns on the job and, you know, just doing a course, it is, as I said before, it's just, it's just the base at which, to which you launch from. Um, but, you know, if you start with zero knowledge, you'll make probably far more mistakes on yeah. that basis. And, and, I, and it's just not an ethos that I sign up to. Sure, sure. But again, I think that comes down to your, your logic, 
your logical approach to stuff, right? Um, and probably yeah, doesn't yeah. sit well with you. It's just probably not not in your kind of ether. Um, so, so you joined the Digital Academy and, and you were then kind of mentored, the group was mentored by Rachel Dunscombe and, um, and others, um, um, but obviously with Rachel being the, the, the chief executive of that. So how, how was that then as an experience? How did that improve you? And, and w- would you say that was a bit of a saving grace for you in that role? Without a doubt. I mean, you know, I, I cannot sing the praises of the Interest Digital Academy high enough. You know, I, mean, I, you know, I, I do set a very high bar. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I'm I'm very quick to find fault in things, um, but for, for their first pass, uh, it was almost spot on um, in terms of you know the the content and and their uh, their approach to teaching, you know, a, a, a bunch of you know mid forties individuals, you know, um, who've all done you know, loads of degrees between them, all super bright, you know, who all kind of think they know best sometimes, you know, and and it was brilliant i've got to say it was absolutely brilliant and so and i think um bringing together um the nhs with imperial with harvard and every university because they're all the kind of people that put the course together was absolutely inspired because i think it brought all the right skills together mm. and I, I think you know not only was it all the knowledge and skills that i learned which i'm still applying day in day out but you know i think it was that that the networking and the contacts that I've made through it, you know, have, have been transformational for me as a person. Yeah, cool. Of course. Because um, Rachel was one of the first, because she was at Bolton when she brought on a number of CCIOs. Philippa Winter was one of them. Um, um, that was 2011, 12, I think, when, when Rachel done that at Bolton, which is like, you know, probably maybe the first in the NHS to do so. I think um, I was speaking to um, James Rawlingson um, at Rotherham, um, who was telling about um, his, uh, his CCIO, um, Richard Slater. Um, again, they were very early on um, in that as well. Um, but it must have been amazing to be mentored or, or to be part of a group mentored by ultimately the person that really made the CCIO a thing in the NHS. Without a doubt, I mean, Rachel was an incredibly inspirational person. Um, just, you know, what she's achieved is, is, is just phenomenal. But, uh, you know, uh, her humility, um, you know, yeah, she's the kind of person who will happily come over and will say, can I hug you? You know, and, and you know, and, and you know, there are no airs and graces uh, with her. Um, you know, we all know what she's achieved. But, you know, when you, when you look at and you talk to her, none of that comes across because you know she would always talk to you as a person yes. um, yeah, and, and, uh, and and i think you know uh, you know those for me are the most effective leaders out there um you know the, um, the ones who don't need to you know show off their shiny badges um you know but the, the ones who are literally leading you know, by example uh, yeah. it's phenomenal yeah so i so she so rachel was going to speak at my event in march um, that unfortunately got cancelled because of because of COVID and the situation. Um, so I've, to be fair, I haven't had that many interactions with her, but completely get what you say. You know, when she answers the phone, it's like, oh hi, Jack, hey, you know, really bubbly, really nice. And you speak to other people, and I think actually part of the reason why I was doing this podcast series, this the person behind the job title series, was to debunk that myth that people with senior job titles are more difficult to speak to, and that actually it's just a human at the end of or behind a title. 
um, and she exemplifies that really does really not really nice bubbly um always always got you know every time i've spoken to her it's always been very very pleasant so i mean actually i need to get her on for a podcast we have spoke about it and i need to get her on so um um there we go that is a definitely i i would absolutely be uh you know signing up to listen to that podcast because you know um, i don't know much about her past and you know i'm guessing it's a phenomenal experience uh, you know journey that she's been on yeah. um you know to get to that point i mean what is clear when you talk to rachel is that she absolutely loves the nhs um and she loves what it stands for she loves uh, what it's done for you know uh for her family her colleagues you know and uh, she, she's really brought into it and and sees the value of of training people properly you know i think recognizing that there are a lot of people out there who, who are interested in but you know, have different interests and when you look in that room um you know this first hundred from cohort one and as you got to know them everyone had an interest in kind of technology in a way in, you know in healthcare but they're all coming from very different angles potentially there were some who liked the tech you know and uh, you know uh, fiddling with code there are others who love data there were some like myself who were all around kind of quality improvement you know and i think what she makes you all realize is all those skills are important but if you try and apply just one you're not going to solve it you know you need to have that 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 kind of end-to-end journey approach to it and that real empathetic you know end user approach because you know, you know, when you're in, you know, management within, within the hospitals, I think sometimes people forget, you know, what our mandate is, mm. um, is it is to care for patients, but actually what it really is, is to give frontline staff, you know, the tools to be able to look after the patients. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's what they're there for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You talk about leadership. What does leadership mean to you? Good leadership, hopefully. Yeah, um, that's a really well. That's a tough question. I shouldn't. I should have thought this beforehand, shouldn't I? Well, what is leadership to me? So, so I guess you know, um, um, when I look at the people who who I see have been good leaders, that guess what does good mean? Um, and for me, it's about being um, effective. So, so you know, just just pointing in a direction and saying everyone follow me you know it is not the sign of good leader um for me good leaders are those who haven't an understanding of, of roughly where they want to go but actually will listen to people who know that space a lot better um don't try and say you know i'm the best in all of this but understand what their what their real skill is is bringing the right people together um and getting them to talk with each other uh, everyone to be become you know enthusiastic and all pointing in the same direction um, that's what a good leader is um, and so it's around a lot of those softer skills um, which um, sadly a lot of schools don't teach or focus on um, and you know and, and, and yeah so that for me is a sign of good leading so you know and, and that's where, where, where I would like to be. Um, yeah no, good answer. Do, do you with your role now as a CCIO, is that full time or are you still doing your consultant role as well? Yeah, I still do my, my consultant role. So in anaesthetics intensive care, yeah. I have one day a week um, as a CCIO, which um, you know um, is, is is nowhere near enough. And I think um, um, our organisation is slowly starting to realise that there is a need far more clinical informatics time, um, and, and not just necessarily at a CCIO level. But, but, you know, as a thread throughout the organization, you know, um, 
I think you see in some organizations, um, you know, um, digital being very separate uh, from, from organizational, you know, in terms of organizational strategy or operational mm -hmm. strategy. And it, it cannot be, um, you, know, um, you know, digital should be, you know, the kind of thread running through that and, and, you know, being able to enable what you want to do yeah. from a strategic and operational perspective. Yeah. Tech, tech being the enabler, right? Tech being yeah. the enabler for improved services, for better productivity, to being safer. Um, or, you know, look at, look at all of the CQC standards. You could apply tech to all of those. How can tech enable us to become more led or better led? Uh, or well-led rather i got there eventually um you're more caring etc cetera, etc cetera. do you know what i mean you know and, and it's about how yeah i can agree you know when you look at the kind of i think the kind of three words um which kind of really resonated with me with me for the Institute academy were from uh from lord darcy's paper which is you know um digital trans trans transmission healthcare it's about delivering safer more effective more efficient care it's mm. not about digitizing for the sake of digitizing yeah you know it's about using that to deliver those three things that's the only way we're going to be able to deliver you know good health care you know and, and you if you want to get buy-in from people on on the shop floor you know um you have to do those three things you know and for them the most important thing are the first two safe and effective you know you know efficient you know of course everyone wants to do things efficiently but you know but for people on the front line what you know why they went emotional trigger right no it's not you know i mean being able to kind of you know say we did it at 20 percent you know um less on revenue i mean that that's great but it's not the reason why doctors and nurses went into um into their professions right you know um, and so, you know, if you put in things which take twice as long or run the risk of, uh, you know, wrong results going to the wrong people, you're doing all the wrong things, you know, mm. and, and so, and I think we sometimes forget those very simple messages about what digital transformation uh, is all about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's next then for you? So, um, you know, is it, is it more around that the kind of digital transformation role and, and you kind of taking more of a so it's being more times perhaps being a ccio rather than a consultant in in, in terms of care and, and and so on yeah i think um so, so one thing that's always been really important to me is to make sure i keep a foot on the shop floor because um you know and i, I see it with other senior leaders is as soon as they leave clinical practice um yeah. it's almost like it's frozen in time for them and and, and they base all their decisions on how what their perceptions were of, of healthcare delivery. So, 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 so one for credibility, but number two to make sure that you understand how it's how how the shop floor is evolving, so, so you can you know um, really help. And if you haven't got an ear on the on, on the real shop floor, you're hearing what people want you to hear in many ways. Yeah. So you've got to be there. You've got to be visible. You know, it's like the old CEOs of the big kind of FTSE companies who say, you know, they used to wander around the shop floor or, you know, make sure all their managers actually worked in each department. And I think it's absolutely true. You know, if you don't understand the business that you're trying to manage or lead, how can you uh, yeah. in many ways, you know? So, yeah. so yeah, so I think, um, um, you know, maybe, you know, I'd like to go into kind of stra um, strategy um, and maybe um, more senior leadership position. Um, and I think would be great. I think, you know, that's for me is what I'm doing all these things now to try and get that base knowledge that I was going about, which is why I'm doing this kind of uh, an MBA course at the moment as well. And I've done like uh, digital clinical safety courses, which NHS digital run. 
being an entrepreneur, you know, yep. I think um, it's really important because you need to understand that side of things, see it from the supplier's perspective, understand what their pressures are, um, you know, what their targets are, you know, um, you know how to engage with them. Uh, and, and then I'll have, you know, the knowledge, the skills, the language to be able to cross all those different boundaries and, and to, to really kind of help to interpret, you know, and support conversations. Um, you know, when, when a supplier says, yes, well, you know, um, we, we can kind of do that. It means that, well, he doesn't have the, the product as yet, but he, but he could do, you know, and, and, uh, or, you know, or, you know, we, we need guarantee, you know, staff say, you know, um, this is important for us. I'm saying why it's important. Uh, and so that, that for me is, is important for the next couple of years is, is to develop shift partner. Um, to develop yeah, talk to me about shift partner. Cause, um, yeah. So, 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 so what is it? So you, you, you developed it, you're, um, you're co-founder. You, you, you do it with yeah. partner. Oh, yes, I'm one of the co-founders. Um, so um, the two other guys are, um, have uh, owned their software company for years and they uh, have been in the cloud space for a long time. So they're kind yep. of they're very long teeth on that. And um, the, uh, the core product, so we have two products now, um, was all around uh, additional shifts at work. So I remember as a consultant uh, you know, coming in early one morning and the, the, the lead nurse for the night shift for ITU was literally, literally in tears. And I said to her, look, you know, what's wrong? And she said, you know, I started the night, the night minus one and I ended up minus two. And I went, I don't know what that means. Can you explain? And she went, well, I, I, I was down one member of staff. They sent me an agency person and they could do nothing. Um, they had n- none of the access to the computers. They had none of the, the prescribing skills that I needed. And so I had to have one member of staff chaperoning her. So I went from minus one to minus two. Yeah, and they had a hideous night, and everyone was just literally run ragged because of that. And so, actually, getting someone in made things worse rather than better. And I was saying, well, you know, surely, uh, you know, they must check, you know, what, what these people have, the skills and stuff. And they went, no, they just see that we need a nurse of this banding, and and they give us a nurse that banding. And I was thinking, well, that's just crazy. And so, so that's where the kind of idea came from. Was actually, you know what? There's a lot of need for flexibility uh, within healthcare and not just within um, acute trust, but across the sectors. And a lot of the kind of products, the digital solutions out there um, are, are very operational. And it's about, you know, here's a job for a band seven nurse and whoever applies to it, yes, you can have it without any contextualization. Um, and it doesn't do anyone any favors. It doesn't help that nurse because she may be thrown into an environment she doesn't understand. It doesn't help that environment she's going into where they need someone who can actually be part of that team. You know, and so this actually formed the uh, the basis of my Energy Digital Academy transformation project for the postgraduate <laughs> diploma, but also my my masters, which I've just just finished. Uh, and so I, um, the my the topic was uh, you know. Uh, you know what motivates uh, nurses to do bank shifts, uh, you know, and really understanding you know, what the challenges are. And if you look in my organisation, for example, fifty um, percent of nurses don't do any additional bank shifts, um, and those that do, ninety percent will only work in their own clinical area. That tells you you've got a problem if you want a flexible workforce. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it was understanding you know, what were the the, you know, the kind of factors behind there, you know, and and actually could we actually build something that can, you know, uh, make a difference? Uh, on, you know, and, and so I kind of took my findings 
to the trust and um, well so so i started the actual um, um the project before the Interdigital academy and it was it was initially a kind of operational tool and we got a pilot up and running and it was looking to be really successful but we noticed dips in data like people weren't applying for shift i mean, didn't understand why that was but then doing the digital academy and and using shift partner as my kind of project all the way through yep. i start to understand actually i know now how to really dig into this and try and really investigate why this is happening and how to make it better so you know i, I got all my research together um and i said i um, nhsi had this capital bid and i said to the trust look i think we should apply for this because we've got a product it's it's basic at the moment but my research shows we need to develop it in this direction they went that looks great and um so we put the application together we took it to nhsi and, and they went this is amazing and they went here you go a load of money um, and so we're now developing the product we're about to kind of expand it across the three organizations um, and, and then building the new features over the next kind of um, six to 12 months um, all based on evidence um, not just you know me and my own ideas you know as to what I think but actually by understanding what the micro problems are uh, you know within that you know within the workforce and you know people have talked about this for years about trying to understand it and and i think we can understand i don't think we can fully solve it we, we, there's definitely elements of it that we can solve with digital as the enabler yeah um, so so that's the main product um so there's a second product actually which um all came out of covid so um our deputy ceo said look Josh, we need a product um literally next week to help us um do swab testing locally because we don't have a government test site near us um can you help us because your kind of app um does like bookings and stuff i said and we said uh okay sort of um yeah and so we literally built a whole new platform in like five days um and you know we literally had people testing on the wednesday night live on the thursday having spent the whole easter weekend building this um and and we we set up the three uh, mobile test sites in the mid and south essex region uh, so we provide the tech and the platform to do it so people can actually um, sign up, they can book a, um, a uh, test uh, appointment a test and, then, yeah. and, and then uh, go and get the test done and then get the results back to them and have their own kind of patient portal. And so it was applying all the skills that I learned from the NG Digital Academy uh, you know, to this product. And then, we, then he said, well, you know, we'd love to do it now for antibody testing. So, we're, uh, okay, so we've got a whole new pathway again uh, you know, within the same platform in about three or four days. Um, and I think as of last week we've done about 30,000 tests on the platform uh, another region west essex heard about it and said look we'd love to use it as well so we went live with them a couple of weeks ago and it's working well there and stuff you know and so you know so that's a kind of a a second one i mean and, and that's that was all being done you know um so, you know, I, you know, we've literally just covered the, the kind of dev costs because, you know, it's for COVID, um, you know, it's, it, it's helping out locally. Um, and, and so it, it's been a really, really good project because you, you really do learn how to build from scratch uh, really quickly. And, you know, um, and, and having all those skills in the digital academy from the digital clinical safety, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was thinking, wow, if I try to do this without this kind of stuff, you know, um, well, one, I want me to do it because I don't have all the skills, but I was able you know, yeah. to put all the right people together with all the right skills um, and to deliver it. And I actually presented it on the, the first Energy Digital Academy webinar uh, about two or three weeks ago saying, you know, um, applying Energy Digital Academy in real world, in, you know, to the real world. And, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a great kind of side story from the main shift partner story.
Awesome. 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 Well, all through that, I realized why you have to wake up at six and go to bed at 11 because, uh, <laughs> I mean, how you cram all this stuff into your day is just crazy. Um, uh, your time management must be just unbelievable. I think if you ask my wife, yeah, she, she's, she's probably uh, the most frustrated person around because she says, like, you can't sit still for two seconds. Um, you know, I can't more than, more, watch more than one episode of anything in a go because I just need to go and do something else. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I just, I just like, like to keep busy. I, I like to kind of you know, do new things and see if I can be you know, successful at it and stuff. You know? And uh, it, it, it does bring me kind of great joy, I've got to say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I can imagine it's um, like the purpose thing you said, right? You know, and it's, yeah. uh, um, per, you know, you'll never get to the end. You'll never get to. That's absolutely right. The yeah, you, but, you know, every step you get, you find a little bit more, more motivation to make another step forward and progressing. So, um, yeah. I, think Jack, I think in this you know, period of time, you've got, to, you've, got, you've got to know me quite well, actually. Um, because if people say to me, you know, when do you want to retire? The answer is, I won't. Never. <laughs> yeah i just never will because it's just not you're, you're, you'll end up getting a lot an allotment when you're about 70 80 won't you and that'll be <laughs> that'll be like you know you'll go to work every day on the allotment or something like that won't you <laughs> well, I, I, i've already done that whole growing vegetables i did that years ago that's already ticked off on my bucket list you know, <laughs> I, you know I, i've run marathons i've uh, done huge cycle rides yeah you name it i've, I've, I've done it well i'm gonna day. ask about that so, so i want to know from you know from a personal perspective um you know, what what do you do to have fun and relax and um, what's what's enjoyable to you and and your family as well i suppose yeah so, so i think um you know, I, i've always um I, you know, I love spending time with my family i think you know um you know, there are a lot of people out there who've been very very successful and, and they all say the same thing they say if i could go back turn the clock back you know i would spend more time with my family and uh, you know, it's the one thing in life that we cannot control is time um and you know that time is quite critical because the changes that your family are going through uh, are huge. You know, I just look back at the photos of my 16 year old in, in his nappies and stuff and, you know, wow, has time flown. But I know that I spent, a hu- I have spent a huge amount of time uh, you know, watching him grow up, helping him to grow up, you know, and, and so that's always been really, really important to me and always will be spending time with the family. Um, I, I love to travel. Um, I've traveled all around the world and normally, uh, we're going away kind of three to four times a year, uh, and I see it as a great investment. Um, one uh, for me, but also for the kids to see what's out there in the world. And, and you know, I think you can get very blinkered by just your own environment. Um, learning new skills, so you know, um, um, I go skiing once or twice a year. Um, you know, I, I learned late in life, uh, so I'm not as good as my kids, who are both annoyingly fantastic skiers. <laughs> um, but but I love to say I love. Um, being outdoors, you know, um, running, cycling. Uh, I loved, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, scuba diving before the kids came uh, along, you know, uh, and, you know, all these kind of things, you know, I, I absolutely love, um, you know, and before um, COVID happened, you know, meeting up with friends, you know, going out to new restaurants, um, you know, taking the family out, you know, we, we have like different kind of like, you know, restaurant challenges, like a couple of years ago, it was about trying to find um, the best mince pie, you know, having a mince pie tasting competition or finding, finding the best burger in London. You know, those are the kind of things, you know, little kind of projects and to, to kind of explore new things. I'm an explorer, I guess, yeah. is, uh, at my heart. You're inspiring. Do you know that? You are, genuinely. You've inspired Thanks, me. Um, I've... Um, 
you said a few things there that, that re- resonate. I need to spend more time with my children. I need to do more stuff with them. And, um, and uh, you seem to um, have real, real clarity on life. Um, and you seem very, very, you know what you want and you, and you, and you do it. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's inspiring. It really is. No, thanks. I, I think, you know, um, just thinking about it, I think when you work in intensive care, um, you know, you, you do see a lot of young people coming in who unfortunately you know um, don't come out of intensive care and it does make you realize that you know you do have one life and you've got to make the most of it and uh you know um, unfortunately both my parents died when i, when I was young um and um you know I, I think those kind of things really do uh kind of hit home and make you realize you know that you, you, you do have you know very limited time um and you know you, you've got to try and make the most of it and, and that often means compromises um, you know i don't know anyone who's done everything and said you know what um, I, I regret nothing um, yeah. you know, and and you know and we we all have choices um and a, a little there's people out there who say that they, they don't have choices um I, I think you know if there's no opportunities that's something to complain about but if the opportunities are there you know it is up to you to kind of grab those opportunities yeah yeah definitely definitely well, it's been a pleasure. It really has been. It's been really good. I've really, really enjoyed this one. So um, thank you ever so much. It's been a pleasure to get to know the person behind the job title. And Jack, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you and uh, I hope we get the ch- chance to meet up in person over a bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via, as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.